This is the Monday, October 2nd, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, our time machine follows professional baseball players onto the battlefields of Europe, the infamous Western Front. America entered the Great War, later known as World War I, in 1917. But after having just re-elected Woodrow Wilson president on a platform of staying out of Europe's squabbles, It's no surprise that men had to be drafted into the fighting because volunteers weren't enough to fill the ranks. The question of the draft seeped into every aspect of American life, even the national pastime, baseball. Here were hundreds of able-bodied men, peak physical specimens, playing a game while the fathers, brothers, and sons of the folks in the grandstands endured the horrors of trench warfare. We hear the story about how the game players, fans, and the War Department clashed and came together in From the Dugouts to the Trenches, Baseball During the Great War. Our drill sergeant in basic training is author Jim Leak. Jim is a contributor to the Society for American Baseball Research Baseball Biography Project, as well as the writer or editor of several books on U.S. and military history. We chatted previously with Jim about his Civil War novel for young adults, that one's called Matty Boy, and we had an interview about a single special game along the lines of today's topic in Nine Innings for the King, the day wartime London stopped for baseball, July 4th, 1918. That makes Jim our first three-peating guest. You can hear both of those previous episodes in our archives, wherever you're listening, or stream them at historyauthor.com. We also invite you to follow Jim on Twitter at WW1Baseball. Okay, now that we've heard the news that the nation is at war with the Central Powers, let's join Jim Leak and follow our favorite baseball players on their journeys from the dugouts to the trenches. I'm joined on the line by Jim Leak, author of From the Dugouts to the Trenches, Baseball During the Great War. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Jim. Thanks. Glad to be here. Your first line in From the Dugouts to the Trenches reads, America wasn't prepared for war in late winter and early spring of 1917, but it certainly was ready for baseball. What was the state of the young national pastime before the Great War breaks out? Well, the state of baseball, at least Major League Baseball, in 1917 was pretty good. There were 16 teams in the two leagues. They were fairly healthy. They had come through the challenge of the Federal League in good shape. 
Well, the minor leagues at that point were always troublesome and contentious. There were minor leagues always coming and going, rising and falling. But at the start of 1917, there were 22 leagues ready to play. The idea of these minor leagues, so much different from today. I think there was 22, was it? Right. They're just everywhere, and there were different leagues. There would there'd be leagues for different trades and such. So it wasn't like today where it's much more streamlined. You have a major league team and maybe a farm team, and that's just as far as we think of it going. There was a lot of players and a lot of competition for this money, and it was a big thing. There wasn't the other sports, right? Well, there was, but it wasn't like it is today. Baseball was it. If you wanted to go, there was all these minor league teams. And we'd had this isolation and sentiment building up to it. People were free to do things like go play a baseball game. As I was reading from the dugouts to the trenches, I thought, here's a nation that is at peace, doesn't expect to have a problem, is going to these games. And President Woodrow Wilson, in fact, runs for re-election on this isolationist sentiment of he kept us out of war. So he reverses after re-election and calls for volunteers. The numbers fall short. I picture people sitting there like in 1984. I thought we were at peace with East Asia five minutes ago. You know, So people don't run to join up. He needs to do some salesmanship. That falls short. So he resorts to drafting young men. And now these young men are the ages of players that are playing baseball. So what impact does the draft have on how people look at the game and the players that are playing the game? Well, the players were young men, as you say. They were uh, eligible for the draft, just like everyone else. And there was a national registration day in June where all young men had to come and register who were between, I think it was 21 and 31 at that point. And uh, Major League Baseball was very careful that all of their uh, players registered on, on the appointed day. Some managers even accompanied their players to make sure they did it. Like every other young man in America, the ball players were the same. So they were affected the same as the others. But in 1917, America wasn't remotely ready for the war. They were ready for baseball, but they weren't ready for the war. It took about six months before they could even build the training stations, the various camps and forts where they trained the men. So there wasn't much effect on the players in 1917. There was an effect on the minor leagues. For several reasons, the audience dwindled for the minors. Some of it was people were disappearing into war work. They didn't have time to attend the games. In some cases, the camps were nearby and they had teams of their own. Transportation was very difficult. So all these things added up. So a number of the minor league teams folded before the end of the season in 1917, and it was even worse in 1918 when the men were disappearing. So by the end of 1918, there was only one league that even finished the season. Hmm. So in 1917, I believe it was only five leagues managed to finish the season. 1918, only one, and that was the so-called New International League, which had, in fact, reorganized before the season, and there was some question whether they would even take the field as well. How many men are we talking about here? Because while it's very high profile to see players that are in peak physical condition and out there playing when maybe your husband or your brother or your son is over fighting in Europe or on their way to being shipped over, it's not as if there's 50,000 or 100,000 men here. How many are we talking about and what real impact could they have had? 
Well, in real military impact, almost none, truthfully. That was more a matter of public perception. By the summer of 1918, there was an estimate that 800 minor league players were already in the service. And by the end of the war, there were probably at least 1,000. There are no hard numbers, but that's a good estimate. For the, the major leagues, the two leagues after the war came out with their estimates, which totaled about 250 of their players were in the armed forces during the war. So uh, at least 1,250 men for the major and minor leagues. That had no appreciable effect, military effect. You know, it was the equivalent of maybe a regiment or maybe one capital ship's company. Not much at all. In From the Dugouts to the Trenches, you write that American League President Ben Johnson had an unforced error in walking what becomes an ever-narrower path of patriotism versus the sport, and that he, quote, was engulfed in this sort of modern media firestorm that was rare in 1917. Talk about this as a way to illustrate how the politics of the draft and who was going to play and who was going to fight really impact America and how it hits all these dailies. At the time, we have all those great daily newspapers, so it becomes a feeding frenzy. Right. Him. Ben Johnson was an interesting character, and he had encouraged the baseball preparedness movement in 1917. But by the that winter, you know, they were clearly losing players. Major League Baseball could see that they were having problems ahead. So in sort of a bull session with some writers, Johnson is talking about how the major league teams were going to stay together. And he speculated about if they could just exempt 18 players per team from the military draft, everything would be fine. Well, that story went out that he was advocating 18 exemptions for players per team. And that just did not go down well at all. That didn't play. <laughs> Virtually every sports page in the country hopped all over Ben Johnson. It was just unbelievable. This was in the days before social media, of course, before radio, before television. It was the newspapers were it. And when the newspapers were down on you, you really had a problem. And Ben Johnson had a problem. And it was a completely unforced error. Some of his friends came to his defense, Connie Mack being one, saying he was, if not misquoted, at least misunderstood or misrepresented. But uh, it was too late at that point. Johnson was really in hot water. There's a book about a more contemporary baseball player, Dr. Rock Positano and John Positano bring us Dinner with DiMaggio. They talked with him about Muhammad Ali. Many people were objecting to his not wanting to serve. And let me just read you a quick quote from the book, and I'll get your reaction to it vis-a-vis -vis how people thought about the Great War at the time and players and what they served, what they did, and looking at them as ball players, not soldiers first. To set this up, DiMaggio tells Doc Positano that Ali is the greatest and that he admires him. He thinks he's a hero. Dr. Positano objects to that, and Joe DiMaggio explains his position. He says, quote, Doc, you're not supposed to be judging a guy in that arena. You're supposed to look at him as a fighter, as an athlete. DiMaggio goes on to make this point. I may not agree with what he did because I'm a veteran myself, but Muhammad Ali is an athlete, and he's one of the greatest ever. In fact, he was as good as me. And so this makes them think about it, and they talk about this idea that 
people could have said the same thing about Joe DiMaggio. He served his three years. He was at the peak of his career in World War II, but he doesn't see combat. And so this is an interesting idea, I think, of where we draw that line. It's something that in the Great War just shows how human the experience is, right? It's something that transcends both. So what do you think about that? Well, I think you have to respect Joe's opinion. It's a little surprising. Uh, It's not judgmental at all. He's basically saying, look at him as an athlete. Uh, You don't have the right to look at him otherwise, unless you were in his shoes. Joe almost sounds a little apologetic that he himself didn't see combat, that there weren't bullets or missiles whizzing over his head. And my opinion is that he doesn't need to feel apologetic at all. He went into the service. You know, he did his time. They had him play baseball. Okay, well, that's a perfectly good use of uh, Sergeant Joe DiMaggio, in my opinion. He did a lot of good. Okay, Ted Williams. Ted Williams is a true American hero. He went and he flew planes in combat in two wars. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he did. And you can admire him for it. But I don't think you have to think any less of Joe DiMaggio for not serving in combat. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't judge... uh, Ali, because as I said earlier, everyone has his own decisions to make. They both did, and uh, they apparently respected each other. These are baseball players, baseball owners, managers, businessmen. They're not generals in the field, and even generals we find sometimes say things that are impolitic, but they flip a switch, really. It's opening day, and everybody is demanded to instantly change the way they're thinking and the things they're saying. He's in baseball. Their jobs are trying to field teams, right? So they're not thinking about the war. It doesn't make them unpatriotic. It's just not what they're thinking about. In From the Dugouts to the Trenches, you talk about how Every team deals with it differently. There's varying degrees here. There's varying degrees of commitment for the players. Players certainly don't want to get injured. They certainly don't want to be doing things that take them away from baseball, especially if they don't see the point in them. They're thinking men. They're not just wanting to go out there and march around with broomsticks, which often happened before the Great War. That's the unpreparedness that you were talking about. That brings us to an forgotten duel that you talked about in the book. That's between Boston and New York City, the Red Sox and the Dodgers in this case, and the different ways that they go about drilling their players to get them ready for potentially fighting. Or the cynic would say, just to have a little bit of PR, keep the kind of hounds that are going after Ben Johnson from chewing at their heels. Describe how that rivalry plays out. Well, there was a distinct difference between the two leagues. The American League's American League teams all had Army drill instructors assigned to them. All eight teams had Army sergeants drilling the ballplayers in spring training and on into the season. In fact, most of the teams had public displays. They would drill on the field before games for the fans. The National League didn't do that as a league. They didn't particularly see the value of the military drills for the players, and truthfully, the players weren't wildly enthusiastic about it either. Two of the National League clubs, the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Boston Braves, did themselves find sergeants and tried to have drills. In the case of the the Dodgers, it didn't it didn't work out very well. Uh, it took them a while to find a sergeant. Uh, spring training was almost over. Uh, The Dodgers, truthfully, weren't much into it, um, for which they were really publicly criticized in some of the sports pages. But then um, 
Harry Frazee, the owner of the, the Red Sox, uh, he was the last uh, American League club to get a sergeant. Uh, they sort of delayed. Uh, in fact, uh, Ben Johnson threatened to assign a sergeant to Harry Frazee's club if he didn't get one pretty soon. So I think hmm. partly to deflect attention from that, Frazee criticized the Dodgers for being slow to drill, even though they were in the other league and didn't have to drill. So Wilbert uh, Robinson, the uh, the Dodgers uh, manager, fired back saying he'd heard that uh, the, the Red Sox weren't very interested in drill either. And so this thing sort of went back and forth between <laughs> between the two clubs and was sort of a, a comic uh, uh, sideline to the, to the much more serious uh, conditions uh, nationwide. You talk about the fact the country wasn't ready when opening day hits in 1917, but they're glad to see the season end in 1917, and their attention, those who are still focused on baseball and not the war, worry about the 1918 season. They see these smaller leagues folding. How did Major League Baseball stay afloat, and did some of those minor league teams ever come back afterwards? A lot of the minor league clubs did come back after the war. Not all of them, not all of the clubs, not all of the leagues, but the majority of them did. As for the major leagues, um, they did pretty much what you would expect them to do. They picked up players when the minor league clubs folded. They weren't above rating clubs that were still playing either. In addition, they would, as in World War II, end up players who were too young and too old for the draft. So there were some fairly elderly uh, squads on the field in 1918, which caused some comment and and not a little humor in uh, sports pages. The men that do go overseas, the players, they don't all play in the exhibition games. Some of them volunteer, like Ty Cobb. We spoke about Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, with author Charles Learson, volunteering for the Gas and Flame Division. You mentioned Major Branch Rickey in your book, and you say how he, or you quote him rather, saying, well, the chance to shoot gasoline on the Germans is gone, and he's kind of disappointed. <laughs> so these guys were not all just going over there for PR. I mentioned the idea of PR before, and that was a necessary role. But many of them do fight. Many of them are injured. Many of them are killed when they're over there. How did you go about compiling all of those stories, especially since this history really wasn't written because a generation later, as you mentioned in the beginning of From the Dugouts to the Trenches, by then people are really focusing on fighting and winning the Second World War. People are not reflecting. So what was your source without that TV, radio, and movies you talked about? The source was almost entirely the newspapers, the sports pages. The baseball history of World War One just never got written. My theory is that when it would have been written, we were fighting World War Two. So I had to dive into the newspapers. In some cases, actual library microfilm, you know, <laughs> running the reader, that type of thing. Uh. More often, though, the research was online. There's an amazing amount of material available online at the Library of Congress site and several other places. Talk about some of the roles that these players take when they get over there, some of the fighting that they do. 
Well, you mentioned the gas and flame division. Those officers, Cobb, Matthewson, Ricky, they got over late in the war and didn't have much impact or effect on the fighting. Others were there much earlier. The first active major leaguer to enlist was Hank Gowdy, the catcher from the Braves, the hero of the uh, Miracle Braves World Series in 1914. He enlisted in uh, June 1917 and ended up as a color sergeant with the Ohio Regiment in the famous 42nd Rainbow Division. So he was over in France before the end of the year in 1917, and he was in very heavy combat in 1918, and came back as baseball's greatest hero, really. He was a very celebrated figure at the time. Other people included Eddie Grant of the Giants and Harry Moose McCormick, his teammate on the Giants. They were both retired by that point, but they both enlisted and went through officer training at Plattsburgh and upstate New York in 1917. They went to separate divisions. They both went to France. Eddie Grant was killed in the uh, Argonne Forest trying to rescue the famous Lost Battalion. That was in October 1918. Moose McCormick came back to the United States early because of shell shock. He just didn't handle the situation emotionally, not unusual, but that was mostly not spoken about during the war years. There are a few mentions in, in sports pages that McCormick came back with shell shock but he mostly disappeared from view. He had a, a quiet billet in uh, California the rest of the war, and many of his friends apparently thought he was still in France. That was a very interesting uh, story of the two men, their different reactions and their different results. You said that there were some mentions in the paper, speaking of not understanding what we would today call PTSD, of sports writers calling him yellow. Yes, there was one column that didn't mention his name, but they were talking about uh, different reactions to the war. And it was an interview with Hank Gowdy. The sports writer used the term yellowness, which Gowdy didn't. But they were clearly talking about McCormick. They were saying how this unnamed ball player went to France in the majors. He had been a fearless pinch hitter who would, didn't show any nerves at all on the field in the tensive situation. And when he got to France, according to the sports writer, he went all to pieces. And he asked Gowdy, how do you account for that? And Gowdy doesn't really have an answer, but he doesn't use the word yellow or coward or anything like that. There was a definite uh, parting of the ways between him and the sports writer on that issue. But in 1918, they called it shell shock. Now we call it PTSD. People didn't really understand it. There wasn't a great sympathy for it, obviously. But I have to hand it to Moose McCormick. He didn't hide after the war. When Eddie Grant died, McCormick was one of the people who helped raise the money for his memorial at the Polo Grounds. McCormick later became the baseball coach at West Point, so he still had the military connection. And during the Second World War, he worked with the military as an athletic officer, not in uniform, but as a civilian. So he never backed away from it. He occasionally made an oblique reference to being in France and his duty there. But otherwise, he went on with his life, and you have to admire that. You mentioned the sports writers, and 
that's something that also comes across in the course of the book is those guys had a role to play too. And some of them went over there. They were willing to serve. They wanted to serve. They felt it their duty to serve. And they would often be required to still do the writing, writing for something like Stars and Stripes. So when we have all these sports writers suddenly, well, if there's no there's no grass, the sheep have nothing to eat. So they are out of a job too. There's not all these minor league teams. The major leagues are off. So they're required to ship over there. Talk a little bit about some of these sports writers. How do they fit into the war effort? Well, they fit in like the ball players and like the rest of the country. Some of them were young enough to be of draft age. Some of them were over draft age, but uh, went anyway because they thought they should. Grantland Rice joined up, became an artillery officer, and when he got to France, the Stars and Stripes grabbed him and put him on their sports desk, and mm-hmm. he promptly wiggled back out of it to get back with his unit. There were quite a number of other lesser-known sports writers who went over as well. Some were a little too old to be on in active combat, so they would be in support roles. Some were in combat, and one or two sports writers that we don't really remember today were killed in action. So they were like everyone else. Everybody was in the, the same situation. Ballplayers, sports writers, every other American man, they all had this choice to make or duty to perform. Everybody was in the, the same situation. Okay, it's time for the seventh inning stretch. My guest is author Jim Leake, and the book is From the Dugouts to the Trenches, Baseball During the Great War. Remember to follow Jim on Twitter at WW1Baseball. That's the letter W twice and the digit one. Matt Sutherland of Forward Reviews writes of the war period covered in from the dugouts to the trenches, quote, The history of those tumultuous 19 months is further enlivened by the heroism of certain players from the Negro Leagues, the patriotic news coverage of notable players overseas, and the major league talent that studded the Army, Navy, and Marine ball teams. To be sure, the Great War has been written about extensively, but this project takes a hanging curveball and knocks it out of the park. While I'm all for baseball references, when I when I read that review, it really wasn't a hanging curveball for you. You had to really go and dig this out. So you talked a little bit about those sources there. Describe what that writing was like and where you went for this idea to really try and be with these men to get the first-person accounts and not just those notoriously sensational sports pages where the guys weren't always chasing the facts. Sometimes they just chased the story. <laughs> Right. Most of the stories were in the newspapers and magazines of the day, including baseball magazines, sporting news, that type of thing. Every city had multiple newspapers, multiple sports pages. The writers who were still around still had all those copy inches to fill. So the ballplayers in uniform always made great copy, always. So when they came back, they'd be interviewed, or when they were on their way out, they'd be interviewed. Their letters would be quoted. There was a constant stream of news and comment about ball players in military service. And of course, the, the sports writing of the era was different from what we have now. It was more colorful, more fun, frankly, but it was, uh, shall we say, less fact-based. So you sort of have to uh, pick through it and decide uh, what is accurate and what isn't. But it's great fun to read, and I always uh, love dipping into those archives. 
Yeah, I frequently mention sometimes I'll just realize I've lost an hour going back and reading about some old news story and going through it and seeing the great turn of phrase and just the reporters did it much differently. They really were talking about the game. Today, I think the sports writers often want to be political writers, and so they'll put a lot of different spin in that and whatever the issue of the day is, and they, they just talk about them differently. They they cover them today like they are political figures, whereas back then they covered for political figures and they covered the sports pages. So it's kind of strange that you read back then you say, wow, this is really about the game and it's about some exciting thing about the player and it's about focusing on him. Not that we didn't have horrible sports writers like Al Stump who smeared Ty Cobb, but it was just fun if you love the English language and you can read it from that perspective. I wonder how you pared all that down because I talked about you losing an hour. You could easily have lost weeks in your research. How did you manage to really keep it focused? You know, I tell you, it just takes discipline, really. Uh, Barbara Tuchman in her book, The Guns of August, about the start of World War I, writes about all the people she met while researching her book in the Library of Congress, all those people who never wrote their books because they couldn't bear leaving the Library of Congress. Hmm. That's a real possibility. It's a real troublesome area. You have to be able to follow your main narrative and not follow all of those uh, interesting little sidelights that you could. <laughs> you, you have to keep your, your goal on, on what you're doing. That said, there are any number of little sidelights that I delved into for a day or an hour or, or whatever that simply wasn't room for in the book. But on the whole, you have to remember where you're going and you have to get there. That review also mentioned the Negro Leagues. That, as we think of it today, and that great museum out in Kansas City, one of my favorite museums of any kind just because it's so interactive, that wasn't around at this time in the Great War. But talk a little bit about these African-American soldiers. They were serving over there, too, weren't they? They were serving over there. The Negro Leagues weren't even around yet. They were independent uh, African-American teams that played each other and uh, occasionally white teams. And just like everyone else, the, they were subject to the draft, and they either were drafted or enlisted. And it was a segregated army, of course. They were in their own units. But there are a fair number of stories in the New York papers about uh, African-American ballplayers, their teams playing white army teams and, and doing very well. There, there are some good descriptions of individual players. And they went overseas as well, of course. There was a lot of Army baseball in France. The African-American ballplayers weren't a big part of that, but they did have some teams of their own. In one of the port units, they had a, a ball club that took on all comers and beat just about everybody, but they had to do it as an independent team and not part of any uh, Army baseball league. So... It was the same story that you saw on through the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s, until Jackie Robinson, really. Sports and war metaphors are often mixed. Sometimes they strike people as perfect. Sometimes they seem a little off. From the dugouts to the trenches is a perfect chance to look at really how the men and the skills cross over between the two. One practical application of baseball skill is the throwing of grenades. What benefit did the Doughboys have over their allies, the Tommies, over the French, not to mention the Huns on the other side? Well, the Allies were amazed by how well the Doughboys 
could throw grenades. <laughs> in fact, Johnny Evers, the great Hall of Famer, he went over to France with the Knights of Columbus, and one of his duties there was to teach the French soldiers uh, how to play baseball because their general, who was married to an American woman and liked baseball, thought that that sport was so helpful for, for soldiers. He specifically requested Johnny Evers, who went to his headquarters at a military school and taught baseball for a couple of weeks. So the ballplayers made really good soldiers. Now, the odd thing is that if you've seen the training films, the approved motion for throwing a grenade is sort of a, a straight-armed lob. The ballplayers must have sort of departed from that. <laughs> and, and not only the ballplayers, everybody who'd ever played ball and were throwing grenades however worked best. And there were actual competitions for who could throw grenades the farthest and most accurately. And, and the doughboys always set the records. <laughs> the French and German soldiers sort of marveled at their ability. And there's a story you have, too, of the doughboys using that skill in a different way when they're riding along. It has to do with oranges. Why don't you tell that anecdote? Right. There was a, one case where I believe it was a YMCA truck that was going down uh, a highway with troops on, on both sides, Allied troops, and they were uh, tossing oranges from the truck to the boys. The French soldiers maybe would catch one orange or bobble it or, you know, then pick it up off the ground and stick it in their in their shirt. The American doughboys, they toss them the oranges and, you know, they grab one out of the air, hand it to a kid, grab another one out of the air, stick it in their pocket, grab a third one out of the air, <laughs> share it with a buddy. People were just amazed at the athletic ability with the oranges marching along the side of the road. One common claim is that the tradition of playing the Star Spangled Banner before sporting events, not just baseball games, began in the Great War. Is that true? And what other differences would a fan have seen at a game during the Great War and the one previous season when the U.S. was at peace? It's partially true. The Star Spangled Banner wasn't commonly played at American ballparks. In fact, it wasn't even yet the national anthem. That didn't come to it. 1931, I believe. But there were instances before the war and during the war when it, when it was played. But the real tipping point was during the 1918 World Series, Cubs-Red Sox, where during one of the games, uh, the band struck up the uh, Star Spangled Banner, and everyone rose, of course. And one of the uh, Red Sox players, who was actually on leave from the Navy, when everyone else was taking their hat off and putting it over their heart, he turned toward the flag and delivered a, a military salute. And the fans just went crazy. And the playing of Star Spangled Banner made such a, an impact, had such an effect that they continued it during the uh, rest of the World Series. And in World Series after that, it didn't start the games. It, didn't, it wasn't played at every game until World War II. And it has continued ever since. And another thing like that, another song, is at Yankee Stadium, they play God Bless America. And that started after 9-11. So I, I love music and baseball. I like that. I love the experience of going to the field. I guess probably everybody likes that, even if they don't sit at home and watch the game, even if they don't really get it. The experience in the modern stadiums, at least if you have enough money in your pocket to afford it, is really special. Still really connects you to those days, still really connects you to the Great War, to all those fans who came before. They have things like Monument Parks, and they have so much there that reminds you of those old players. 
Right. Baseball, more than any other sport, I think, really has that sense of history and that connection with history. And, uh, yeah, it's always worthwhile to uh, go to the park and feel those connections. We talked about the idea of PTSD affecting these great war soldiers, how horrific the trenches were. Earlier, it went by the name Soldier's Heart, Shell Shock, Battle Rattle in World War II. This was something that a lot of these soldiers suffered from and throughout wars, many soldiers deal with. It's very difficult. And at the time, there was even less understanding than there is now of what it meant. At least today, we have an acronym, which I guess means it's sort of transcended into the scientific realm, not just something that we mention offhandedly with a nickname and try not to think about. Lieutenant Harry McCormick, what set him out in your mind? And were there other stories of heroism and sacrifice that you'd like to have included in From the Dugouts to the Trenches, but in those microfilm archives, in those old newspapers, you just couldn't find enough details to make their story stick in the book? Yeah, Harry McCormick, he was just such a interesting and sympathetic character, I thought, and his connection with Eddie Grant was very touching, I thought. Other stories of heroism, well, there was Grover Cleveland Alexander, who was sort of a uh, reluctant soldier, it must be said. When he realized he was going to be drafted, he tried to get into the Navy, and it didn't work. He ended up in a field artillery unit with a number of other ballplayers, big lake ballplayers, and they were in very heavy combat in France towards the end of the war. And he was affected, of course. He was never quite the ballplayer after the war that he had been before, in part because of his experience in, in combat. African-American ballplayers as well. I think there's a very good story there. And that's a whole area for scholarship, I think, of really the ballplayers, both in the United States and overseas in the Great War, whether they saw combat or not. There were a number of very good African-American players in the service, at least two Hall of Famers. That's an area that I think deserves a, a book of its own, and I hope somebody uh, follows up on that. And as I mentioned, there are all these little alleys you could go down that I maybe explored a little bit, but didn't get sidetracked for weeks or months. Anybody who looks into World War One is going to find any number of really fruitful areas to explore. I also wanted to mention as far as those different camps that were having teams of their own and competing that way, you mentioned Camp Merritt in the book, which always excites me. As listeners may have heard me say before, Camp Merritt, the monument stands in the town where I grew up. That was one of the big training camps in New Jersey for the war. It was a big sprawling complex. Today, it's mostly covered over by subdivisions, but there is a big obelisk in town at one of the traffic circles that marked the center of Camp Merritt. That's the town I grew up in, and listeners may have heard me talk about that, talk about our Memorial Day parade when I was in the marching band starting up there, and marching all the way down Madison Avenue, and remembering the veterans of all wars going and looking at the names up there on that obelisk. I've seen the Camp Merritt banners at the National World War I Museum, uh, also out there in Kansas City. You gave me something, though, that I didn't know, and it's funny how sports works, because you have a game that you talk about just in passing, Camp Merritt, and I believe it was the Brooklyn Navy Yard. It was a, a Brooklyn team. 
And you said in the book that Camp Merritt won. And even though it's 100 years ago and I have no connection to it other than this little tenuous one of that being my town and having driven around the monument many times and thought of the soldiers, I said, all right, we beat them. So I wanted to thank you for including that. And that was pretty common, I guess, different bases playing each other, different camps. It was very common. And it really reflected the rivalries within the uh, the big league teams. There were you know, very natural rivalries. There was Camp Devons outside Boston and the Boston Navy Yard. They played each other a couple of times. In fact, they had big league ball players on, on both clubs. There was Great Lakes Naval Training Center versus uh, Camp Grant in Illinois. They played each other uh, a number of times. There was even some discussion of like sort of a military World Series, maybe the Atlantic Fleet versus Camp Grant or Great Lakes or something like that. Uh, it never happened because of the influenza epidemic mm-hmm. that sort of curtailed uh, military baseball in 1918. But there were several great intercamp and interservice rivalries, especially in 1918. Yeah, that obelisk remembers the men and women. There's, there's many nurses there. It's, it's an army base. So there's stories of men just walking down the street and falling down dead. That's always such a sad part of the Great War. These men who do survive come back and they face a flu epidemic that's or pandemic rather around the world that claims more lives than the great war did than the fighting did than the trenches it's really it really a sad thing it's nice to remember that there's something like baseball something that's actually life affirming something that's fun that survives even though it goes through all of these changes in the great war and goes through all of that plague that comes after right the flu really was a terrible epidemic at the time the majority of Major and minor league ballplayers who died during the war died of the flu. And uh, even after the war, Grantland Rice writes about when he was coming home on on the troop transport, flu swept the ship and uh, a number of soldiers died during the voyage. And he talks about how somber everything was when he did finally get home. There was one soldier. He might have been one of those sergeants. It's not in from the dugouts to the trenches, but it's a story about him coming home. And I think he has a wife and four or five daughters. They all are lost to the flu. And he ends up going back over to Europe and he ultimately contracts it himself and passes away. It was just such a horrible thing. I think that's part of the reason that maybe people didn't look back 20 years. They didn't want to remember all that carnage. Certainly you don't want to remember. I often think of the friends that I had growing up whose houses are built on Camp Merritt. That was somebody very likely, almost guaranteed, passed away there, lost their life from this flu pandemic. They'd be walking down the street, they'd be marching, they'd be falling out of lines, dying. You don't think of that in little suburban New Jersey town, but the war was really there. And I think it's great that your book can remember it now. It's 100 years later, but those ball players were real people, worth being remembered. They're really trying to do their bit and go overseas. And I like that. It fleshes it out for me. Maybe I'll give that monument an extra spin around next time and think about the ball players there at Camp Merritt. And I'll try to remember who they played against because I have to remember the other team so that I can dislike them, you know, shake my <laughs> fist a little bit. Right? right. Well, you know, some of the ball players, many of the ball players who didn't go into the armed forces went into essential jobs, war related work mm. uh, in the shipyards and the steel mills, that type of thing. And several ball players who were working in those jobs and playing on the company teams, they caught the flu as well. Some of them died. 
Babe Ruth caught the flu. Wow, I never knew that. Yeah, he was affiliated with one of the Bethlehem companies and played very briefly on one of their teams, and he caught the flu. So it's entirely possible that we could have lost Babe Ruth during the war. Makes you think, wonder how he'd be remembered today if he'd been a casualty of the war. Maybe we would remember the pandemic a little bit better than we do now if we lost somebody so high profile. Right. One more thing about Eddie Grant. There's the Eddie Grant Memorial Highway that's just north of Yankee Stadium. Another echo there when you go to the game, maybe if you're driving, I was watching those signs. So that's another connection is that highway. He didn't play for the Yankees, play for the Giants, but it's nice to see him memorialized there as well. And you get to really know him by reading from the dugouts to the trenches and know why people name these roads. Sometimes we forget even who they are named for or what war they served in. Right. You ask about potential uh, books from the Great War. That would be a good one. Eddie Grant and Moose McCormick, I think. I always think of them as Moose and Eddie. Eddie Grant left a a diary that he kept during the war overseas that I understand is very strictly guarded by the family. You know, of course, cherish it. So enterprising writer at some point could uh, gain access to that and some other documents. There, there, there might be a very good book there about it, Moose and Eddie. One final question as we reach the bottom of the ninth inning. Today's pro baseball players are often derided as just millionaires playing a game. We often look away from all that great war carnage because it's so much death for seemingly no resolution. People say that World War II is the real end of World War I. So we only set up more carnage. It's hard to think about this. People want to put it away, move on with their lives, and then they have a depression. They have another whole world war to fight. So with all of that history swirling around after this, what benefit do you hope readers will draw when they finish from the dugouts to the trenches about this generation of baseball players a hundred years ago compared to today's players and the difference between the two? What do you want readers to walk away when they see an obelisk like at Camp Merritt or they see Eddie Grant Highway? What do you want people to carry with them? in their hearts about the Great War soldiers who happen to also be ball players. Well, you know, uh, there clearly is a difference between players today and then. The, the players today make so much money and get so much media attention. The players back then got the media attention and a different type of media, but they didn't have the money. Almost all of them worked other jobs in the off season. They were much more relatable, really, I think. And my feeling is that the, the ball players of World War One were no better or, or worse than any other young American male of the time. You know, they were a lot closer to them. That's, that's who they were. They were just ordinary people who happened to have uh, an extraordinary skill. So they had the same decisions to make, choices to make, as every other young American male. So it's never easy. So they did what they thought was right for them, for their country, for their families. And I don't think you can particularly question their decision, whatever their decision was. They were in that time, and they were doing the best they could, as everyone was. So, yeah, ballplayers were Americans, and they did the best they could. And some of them did extraordinarily well. 
Well, Jim Leak, author of From the Dugouts to the Trenches, thank you for joining me today and uncovering another great story of baseball and the challenge the players faced as the nation shifted away from being at peace to the world at war. I really did enjoy it. I hope that if people like baseball or just like history or maybe they have looked away from the Great War before because of all the reasons we mentioned, this is a great way to read about it and get a really unique slice of history and of Americana. So thank Thank you. Best of luck with the book. And I look forward to hearing about one of these other books that you've just clearly thought about here. So let's get to work on those. I'll read those next. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Again, the book is From the Dugouts to the Trenches, Baseball During the Great War. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we do hope you'll click through there, or even bookmark historyauthor.com for all your online purchases. You go to historyauthor.com, our banner takes you through to Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional charge in your shopping cart. By those few taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. Thanks to Jim Leake for joining us a third time and sharing the untold story of baseball players who answered the call in the Great War. Remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean and let Jim know at WW1Baseball. You can also drop us a like at Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this episode of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next week's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And remember, if you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We leave you with the full version of our theme song, New York Ain't New York Anymore. The lyrics tell the bittersweet tale of the changed Gotham that the surviving Doughboys, baseball players and average Joes alike, found waiting for them when they returned home from over there. Standing alone, I saw Georgie Cohn somewhere on Long Acre Square. Crowds passed him by, I heard Georgie sigh, nobody noticed him there. I asked him why he didn't smile He said in that old Cohen style Oh, New York ain't New York anymore How I miss those old pals of mine The sawdust is gone from the floor Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline On the east side, west Side things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. I remember he said when I first hit Broadway, New York was New York and the White Way was gay. There were Sherry's and Murray's and Rector's, you know. The Claridge and Churchill's and Delmonico's. Music and laughter, and the prices were right. 
A ten dollar bill meant a wonderful night And then came the day Broadway wasn't prepared When the newsboys yelled extra, war is declared But the hand that held glasses of wine in the air Were the first to hold guns when I rode over there The boys won the war and came home from the fight The last night on Broadway was almost as nice But ever since then, it's a different street Gone are the places where the gang used to be We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same On the east side, west side Things ain't like before There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys Oh, New York ain't New York anymore 